Well, Happy New Year, everybody. It is awesome to see you, and I'm aware that I'm a bit late on the whole Happy New Year thing, but as many of you know, for the past two Sundays, my wife and I have been in Israel riding camels. Check out this picture. Okay, let me tell you about riding a camel. It looks better on the brochure, okay? (laughs) It was a 20-minute camel riding experience with Bedouins, which I was like, that sounds really cool. And about two and a half minutes in, I'm like, this is not going well. And I'm fairly confident that Mary and Joseph did not ride a camel all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, I'm just saying. But uh, we were actually there scouting out locations to bring a bunch of Keystone friends back in October of 2020. And so we're still working on details, but it's going to be an absolutely incredible thing. And again, we'll get you uh, plenty of notice if you want to consider joining us in October of 2020. But for today, we get to conclude a series that we've called The One Thing. And it's an idea that has been with me literally for decades. And I've used it so many times in my life in wonderful and catalytic ways. We just wanted to sort of pass along the blessing to all of you. I first was introduced to the concept way back in the year of our Lord, 1994, who was alive? Let me see your hands. There you go. Bill Clinton was in the White House, right? Everybody was really excited about this new technology called email. Remember that one, right? Ace of Base was on the top of the charts. Some of you were like, wow, right? The new ABBA. Forgot about them. Um, And probably most significantly to our conversation today, I was in a Bible study in the basement of my dorm at the University of Michigan. And it was, uh, we had just come back from Christmas break, kind of launching the new year. And our campus pastor, who, by the way, is still there at the University of Michigan, a guy named Nino Guarisco, was leading the study. I found this picture from Nino. This is last year. And it makes me wonder, like, when I was there, was he like eight years old? <laughs> He's like the Dick Clark of campus ministry. I don't, I, I don't understand But anyway, uh, Nino uh, led us through this exercise that he called the one thing. And he started by saying this to us. He said, you know, there's a lot of things you could do this year. And there's a lot of things you will do this year. But if you're honest, there's one thing you must do this year. He says, there's something that you carried into this year that you shouldn't carry out of this year. And then he said, odds are you already know what your one thing is. He said, it might be something you need to stop. He said, it might be something you need to start. It it might be a change in your life that people who love you have already suggested to you. And you keep thinking, yeah, I'm going to get to that later. It might be something that you've already tried to change in your life and you failed. But you all know what your one thing is. There's that one thing that if you don't do anything else, you really have to get after that this year. And I will never forget that conversation. In fact, the one thing is an idea that I return to every new year as I sort of take an inventory of my present reality and I try to determine what I want for my life moving forward. Well, in this series, we've invited all of you to identify your one thing for 2019. And and just to kind of get you thinking, I made up a list of what they might be. It might be a habit that you need to break. And no one needs to tell you what it is, right? You already know what it is, but, but you have a complicated relationship with something that's got itself into your life and you feel trapped. And if you're honest, if you could just push a button and magically be done with it, you totally would. One of those easy buttons, you know what I mean, from Staples, that, but they're not that easy. That'd be your one thing. 
For others of you, it's a goal that you need to accomplish or a project that you need to complete. Like you, you get to the end of December and you think, you know what, this next year, I need to finally finish my degree. I did this for like 20 years. So there you go. It can happen. And then I finish. So there you go. Right. But that may be that thing for you. It's that thing that you think about at night. It's just that thing you never quite brought across the finish line. And when people bring it up, you kind of get defensive, don't you? Maybe it was just me. I don't know, but whatever. Maybe that's it for you. Uh, on a little more serious note, maybe it's a relationship you need to restore. You know, you need to, you know, you ought to, you need to make the phone call. You need to set up the lunch. You need to have the conversation. You need to reconnect and you think, you know, thinking about doing it is, is great. When you actually get down to doing it, there's always something you'd rather do than enter a complicated relational situation and try to bring healing. And so you just push it off for later. For others of you, maybe it's a relationship you actually need to end. In a word, the relationship is toxic, but it's complicated, Right. It's complicated because you're entrenched and enmeshed with this person. And so, again, if you could just push the easy button and fast forward through all the relational drama and just be done with this thing, you would. But for you, that's, that's your one thing. It's a relationship and it's not helping you and it's not helping anybody else. Or maybe, maybe more practically, it's just a debt you need to retire. It's been hanging around for a while and you get this reminder every month, sometimes by email, sometimes by a letter, right, that you still have this Debt, and every time we talk about the class Financial Peace University, where you can sort of get your financial world in order, you think, I should sign up for that. But, but you just never pull the trigger. You just keep kicking the can down the road. And you know it's not good for you, and it's really not good for your relationships. If you could free up some margin, that would be wonderful for your life. You could get out of debt. So that's, that's, maybe that's your one thing. Well, that's, that's my list, and maybe you, your thing isn't on that list. Maybe you have another thing, or maybe you're like, dude, I went six for six. I got lots of one things, right? But, but if you're honest, it, you take an honest inventory of your life, you think one of those, though, probably is the most important thing for you to deal with. So that's, that's what the one thing is. And what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is I'm going to tell you the same story from the Old Testament that we studied that night in the basement of my dorm at the University of Michigan. And I actually want to key in on one verse that has literally helped me for decades. And my hope is that this one verse would intersect with your one thing and give you courage and clarity as you take the journey of change that you know you need to make. And so um, Bob and Ryan both have introduced the character we've been studying for this series, Nehemiah, to you for the past couple weeks. But if you haven't been with us yet in 2019, cough like me, uh, let me quickly catch you up. And so as we enter Nehemiah's story, the year is 444 BC. And Nehemiah is a Jewish person, but he's never been to Israel, as far as we can tell. He's living a thousand miles away in a city called Susa in modern day Iraq. And Nehemiah is actually employed by the king of the Persian empire, a guy named Artaxerxes. So if you're pregnant, write that one down, Artaxerxes. It's really nice to call him Artie for short. Anyway, uh, he's employed by the king. He has a great job. He's called the cupbearer, which doesn't mean much to us, but it basically means his job was to taste the wine before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And so as I was reflecting on this job description, I'm thinking that is a great gig until it isn't, right? So that's a slow burn. You'll get that later. Yeah, right? Yeah, I thought that was more funny than it was. We're going to keep moving. Yeah, okay. So anyway, uh, Nehemiah and his people, the fellow Israelites, have been out of the land of Israel for over 100 years. Because 100 years prior to Nehemiah's story, uh, Israel is destroyed at war. And the people are deported to another country. And so 
As we enter the story, uh, Nehemiah is unaware of what's going on in his ancestral homeland, but as the story opens, he learns that things are not well and it sort of crashes him emotionally. Here's what he says, and Nehemiah is a wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's actually written in the first person, so we get Nehemiah's thoughts. Here's what, we, here's what he tells us. He says, while I was in the citadel of Susa, one of my brothers, that would be a, a fellow Jewish person, came from Judah, and that would be the region where Jerusalem is in, a thousand miles away, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So how's it going back home? Here's what he learns. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and distress. So not everybody who was taken out of the land has stayed out of the land. A few have come back, but life is hard for them. Great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This was a big deal in the ancient world. This basically meant the city was not defensible against enemies and government structures really couldn't be formulated. So then uh, he continues, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we see that Nehemiah is a man of faith. His faith in God is very much alive, even though he's a long way from his ancestral homeland. He's never maybe seen the temple, right? The temple mount where the temple would have stood, but his faith is alive. And so he pours out his heart to God. And you got to wonder, like he's asking God, what in the world should I do? This can't stay in ruins. And so after a time of mourning, Nehemiah actually approaches his boss, the king, who happens to be a friend. And he's granted permission to return to Jerusalem with supplies and money to help his people. What's more, the king says to Nehemiah, okay, I'm going to basically make you the mayor of Jerusalem. So you have the authority to make the changes that need to be made. But he also makes Nehemiah promise to return. So Nehemiah, this is not an indefinite, uh, uh, indefinite leave of absence. You're going to go, but you're going to come back. So Nehemiah's time in Jerusalem is limited, and that becomes critical to understanding the story and our conversation about the one thing. And so Nehemiah makes the thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem, and he comes over the edge of the city and he sort of sees it laid out before him and he's completely overwhelmed by what he finds because the city is devastated. It's been overrun by thieves and robbers. The surrounding region is controlled by warlords. National pride was non-existent. There was no sense that God was with them. And so Nehemiah spends the day walking around the city, talking with people, listening to their stories, listening to their frustrations. And he reaches this conclusion. He says, you know, if there's only one thing that I get done in the time that I have here in the city, the walls must be rebuilt. And to be clear, Jerusalem was a train wreck. There was a lot of urgent things that needed attention. People were hungry. There was no organization. There was no government. But Nehemiah decided that though lots of things were urgent, one thing was most important. Rebuilding the walls was the one thing that could change everything. Because if the people had walls, they would have a sense that they could be protected. National pride would rise. Hope would rise again. And again, they would find a picture for their future. And so Nehemiah gathers the people and casts a compelling vision. And the people listen to these words of hope. And the people listen to these words of direction. And the people rally behind Nehemiah and immediately begin to rebuild the wall. 
Well, here this is where the story takes a turn and it gets a bit complicated because in short order, the aforementioned thieves, robbers, and warlords started to get worried. Because see, they've been able to do whatever they want to do. There's been no sort of central organization, but they know if the walls are rebuilt around the city of Jerusalem, then the city of Jerusalem all of a sudden is defensible and they won't be able to plunder and steal at will. Moreover, they haven't been great to the people of Jerusalem and it's very possible that the people will raise up an army and go on the offensive against them. And so they say, we've got to try to stop this project. And so an influential leader by the name of Sanballat begins to organize a resistance. He sort of emerges as the de facto leader of the resistance and he sends armed forces to attack the workers who are rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah is forced to divide his workers into people holding chisels and people holding swords. But the work on the wall continues nonetheless. The walls get higher and higher. And finally, they get to the place where they're almost complete and they're planning to reset the gates in the city and sort of complete the defensible structures around the city. And so Sam Alec gets worried. He regroups and changes strategy. He decides, what I really need to do is these people keep building the wall. I need to take out their leader. If I can distract Nehemiah and I can get him out of the city and I can get rid of him, then perhaps the construction would stop. And so we're going to enter the text at Nehemiah chapter 6 and we get this encounter uh, between Sam Ballot and Nehemiah that basically happens via letter. Here's, here's what Nehemiah tells us. Now, when it was reported to Sam Ballot and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there was not a gap left in it, though up to that time I had not set up uh, the doors and the gates, meaning you could still attack the city at this point. Next slide. Uh, Sam Ballot sent me this message. And this is awesome. He goes, Come. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I love this because like they're enemies and he just sends him a letter. He's like, hey dude, we should have lunch, right? <laughs> Breakfast, Starbucks has got a great new latte. We could check it out, right? And, and maybe we could just get together, have a little chit chat. But Nehemiah knows what's going on. And I, I think there was a clue because listen, if somebody who hates your guts and wants you dead invites you to a meeting in a place called Ono, I mean, I'm no master in ancient languages, but that seems like a really bad idea to me, right? And so uh, Nehemiah gets what's going on here and he responds, check out what he says. So he says, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. And the next verse for me is the one that haunts me in wonderful ways and I want to bless you with it, right? And this is something that I try to keep right in front of me because this image is so helpful if you're trying to make lasting change in your life. So I sent him this message saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Friends, there's something in each of our lives. There is a wall in each of our worlds that needs to be built and we need to climb up and make sure that we complete whatever it is that we know we need to complete. And when distractions come, and they will, and when urgent things surface, and they will, we need to stay on our wall and say like Nehemiah, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Whatever it is that you have in mind is not nearly as important as the work that I am about. Check out what Nehemiah says next. He says, why should, I, why should the work stop while I leave it 
and come down to you. And so as the story continues, it's awesome. Sam Ballot basically tries to work the angles. He's like, what if I have my people call Nehemiah's people? And Nehemiah's like, I don't have people. I'm just new to the area, right? It's like they said, when it's convenient, let us know we're flexible. But Nehemiah's response didn't change. He keeps saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. And if Nehemiah had come off the wall and met with Sam Ballot, he would have lost his life. And now if we just take a moment and pause and exit Nehemiah's story and talk about us, for a moment, if you think about it, there are things in our lives that if we don't complete them, if we don't focus on them, they're actually dangerous to our lives. If we don't deal with them, they actually have the potential to ruin our lives. And so as I was, I was preparing, I just sort of thought of the different ways this might be true. For some of us, there are things relationally that if we don't tend to them, they have the potential to kill our families, our marriages, and our future relationships with our kids and our grandkids. Kind of a close to home example to me, like some of us have young kids and sometimes they can be mildly annoying. Can we say that in church, right? Yeah, maybe it's just my kids, but yeah. Some, if, if they're here, honey, I love you. Yeah, okay. Um, but some of us have young kids and tonight we need to sit on their beds and stroke their hair and say to ourselves, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. And there are a lot of things I could do. And there are, are a lot of things I could get involved in. But, but for this season, this is the great work that God has called me to do. This is the greatest work in my life, though it doesn't always feel like it. So I am not coming down. Some of you have teenagers and you need to do something similar, but they tend to wake up and be a little more jumpy. So I would suggest you set an alarm so you're sure they're asleep and go in their room and stand there and look at them and just think, I am doing a great work. I am doing a great work. And, and my life has never been more filled with dis potential distractions, potential opportunities. But for this season, I am doing a great work with this kid. And I cannot come down. For some of us, um, you know, men, you have a picture of your wife and kids that sits on your desk at work. And maybe for you, each morning when you get to work, you, you take a look at that picture. And you know there's always more opportunities to travel and sometimes you, it's fine to travel and sometimes you know, there's more opportunities to make money and that's great too, but, but maybe just to ground yourself. And you know what? My, my greatest work right now isn't the new sale and it isn't the next trip. My greatest work is the people in my life who I love the most, the people in this picture. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Or wives, you know, look at your husbands and then think, man, they are a piece of work because we all are. Let's just be honest, Right? But here's the thing, your role is so critical in the life of your spouse. So, so critical. It's like maybe for you, just a rhythm of reminding yourself, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. And there's all sorts of relational applications to this. You know, you can think of it in terms of finances too, because there are things in our financial world that if you don't fix them, they have the potential to ruin you financially. And 2019 is upon us now and some of us are facing it and we didn't pay attention to the breach in our wall and now we're vulnerable. Maybe for you, you say, this is the year. Whatever it takes, I need to sign up for the class. I need to sit with someone, sort of open my books and say, I, I keep heading in the wrong direction. What can I do differently? This is the year for you that maybe that wall gets finished. And then there are those things that, that have the potential to actually physically kill us if we don't pay attention to them. Because some of us have had health challenges that we've been ignoring. 
And, and we've told our wife or we've told our husband, you know, don't bring that up again. Or we've changed doctors, because that always helps, right? Or we've torn up prescriptions. We're not paying attention. And, and that something in the long term really has the potential to take our lives. So, so there are these things that are so, so critical. What is it for you? What is it for you? I think in the end, we all know what the one thing is for us as we start 2019. That, 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 that once we know, we're responsible to say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. It's like, you're cute, but I'm not coming down for you. That's a great opportunity, but I'm not coming down for that. I'd love to hang out with you guys um, later. For this season, for this season, I'm not coming down. I know what I need to do and I'm going to do it. I'm going to say no to the urgent and no to the desirable so I can say yes to what's truly important. And so the challenge for all of us as we face a new year is simply this. Will we climb up the ladder and stay on the wall until we finish what we know in our hearts we need to finish? And when distractions come, will we simply say, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down? You gotta say it to yourself because if you say it to somebody else, they don't know the story, it's gonna be weird. But right, okay, there we go. So the fact that Nehemiah doesn't come off the wall does not discourage his enemies. In fact, what Sam Ballot does as the story continues is he changes tactics. He begins a rumor that Nehemiah is planning to rebel against the Persian Empire, which is absolutely comical. But his hope is that Nehemiah would return to Persia to dispel the rumors. Here's, here's what Nehemiah tells us happened. So then the fifth time, so Sam Ballot's tried four other times. Fifth time, Sam Ballot sent his aides to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, as in we've told everybody, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, okay? He continues, he says, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. You are up to no good, Nehemiah. So he says this. Now, this report will get back to the king, as in Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So come. Let us meet together as if the warlord is going to do anything about it. I just love this story. Um, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. And this one is a great memory verse for you. Just write this down. You are just making it up out of your head. Okay. If you have children, this is a great one to just keep ready, right? Uh, none of what you are saying is happening. You are just making this up outside of your head. I've used it three times this week for my kids. And I always get a blank stare, but I laugh inside. It's great. So, so. Whatever the plot against him, Nehemiah stays on the wall. He ignores the urgent for what is ultimately important. He ignores the rumors and the threats and the invitations and keeps his focus on what matters most. And what's so fun about the Nehemiah story is we actually learn, eventually they finish the wall and they finish it pretty quickly. Here's how the author records it. He says, so the wall was completed in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And I love that partly because um, the walls rebuilt in 52 days from 100-year-old rubble. And I love that the nations around said it happened with the help of our God because, friends, there are no miracles there's no supernatural intervention in the story of Nehemiah. There, there are no angels building the walls at night. There are no lightning bolts killing Sam Ballot and his people. Nonetheless, when people saw what they had accomplished, they saw the fingerprints of God. 
And what's fun is that the story of Nehemiah represents a turning point in the history of Israel. Because of the wall, exiles from all over the world begin to return to the city of Jerusalem. And they recapture the Bible and they return to God. And it all started because Nehemiah stuck to his one thing in spite of significant obstacles. So I need to ask you one last time, what is your one thing for 2019 with all the things you can do, with all the opportunities and all the distractions? What's the one thing you must do? And whatever it is, I plead with you, do it. You're worth it. And so are the people you love. To deal with your one thing is to take a step towards your preferred future. You're more available to serve others and love others when you deal with whatever your one thing is. It's ultimately what you want for you. And friends, it's what your heavenly father wants for you. Because he loves you and he is for you. And whenever we carry stuff that he knows is robbing us of life, it breaks his heart. As we wrap up the series today, we have an opportunity to take communion together. And so what I want to do is kind of set it up for you and the band's going to come. And if you're new around Keystone, um, you need to know uh, you don't need to be a member here to take communion. We only ask that you have said yes to the invitation of Jesus and you're seeking to follow him with your life. And if that's you, you're welcome to come and participate with us. Um, on the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, he had a last meal, a last supper with his disciples. And during this meal, he took elements that would have been common at every meal in the ancient world and he infused them with new meaning and new significance. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is about to be broken for you. And they didn't understand what he was saying at the time, but they soon would because, you know, within 24 hours, he was hanging on a cross. And then he took a cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new testament in my blood, which is going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what's about to happen to me is going to pave the way for you to have peace with God. And it wasn't just the people in that room. This was a sacrifice that was opened to all who would believe. And then he said this, he says, when you eat the bread, when you drink from the cup, remember me. Remember how much you're loved. Remember that God is for you, even when it doesn't feel like it, when your life circumstances are screaming to you a different message. God is for you. Your heavenly father sent me to die for you. And so you never have to wonder. And so let me pray for us. Maybe just take a moment to say thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. And then you're welcome to come. There are stations along the front and in the back. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning in this place, we, we just thank you for loving us. We thank you for believing in us when we don't believe in ourselves. We thank you for over and over again inviting us to move back in your direction and to find the life that is really life. I pray for friends that over the past few weeks have reached a level of new clarity on whatever their one thing is. I pray that you would give them courage to go after it. You'd surround them with friends who can maybe take the journey with them to encourage them. 
Most of all, though, this morning we say thank you once again for Jesus who gave everything so that we might have life. It's in his name we pray. Everyone said, amen.